And this, this Tibetan monk, Shabkar, who I mentioned, with this great yogi and wandering hermit. He wrote, another day I went out for some fresh air to a meadow covered with flowers. While singing and remaining in a state of awareness, I noticed among the profusion of flowers spread out before me, one particular flower, waving gently on its long stem and giving out a sweet fragrance. As it swayed from side to side, I heard this song in the rustling of its petals. The flower, an offering. My father and mother are the sky and the earth. I am the child nurtured by warmth and moisture. See how beautifully I display my fine petals, waving them in the ten directions. They are the offering, they are my offering to the three jewels. And the flower goes on to speak to Shabkar. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but in fact you even lack awareness of impermanence and death let alone any realization of emptiness. For those with such awareness, outer phenomena all teach impermanence and death. I, the flower, will now give you, the yogi, a bit of helpful advice. A flower born in a meadow, I enjoyed perfect happiness with my brightly colored petals in full bloom. Surrounded by an eager cloud of bees, I dance gaily, swaying gently with the wind. When a fine rain falls, my petals wrap around me, and when the sun shines, I open like a smile. Right now, I look well enough, but I won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome frost will dull these vivid colors, till turning brown, I wither. Thinking of this, I am disturbed. Later still, winds, violent, merciless, will tear me apart until I turn to dust. You, hermit, are of the same nature. Surrounded by a host of disciples, you enjoy a fine complexion. Your body of flesh and blood is full of life. When others praise you, you dance with joy. You sit in a dignified manner. When they shower you with lavish food, you smile with satisfaction. Right now you look well enough, but you won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome aging will steal away your healthy vigor. Your hair will whiten, your back will grow bent. When touched by the merciless hands of illness and death, you will leave this world for the next life. Since you, mountain-roaming hermit, and I, a mountain-born flower, are mountain friends, I have offered you these words of good advice. Then the flower fell silent and remained still. In reply, I sang, O brilliant, exquisite flower, your discourse on impermanence is wonderful indeed. But what shall the two of us do? Is there nothing that can be done? The flower replied, I make this offering an offering to the three jewels. We too must now do as I say. Among all the activities of samsara, there is not one thing that is lasting. Whatever is born will die. 
whatever is joined will come apart. Whatever is gathered will disperse. Whatever is high will fall. Having considered this, I resolve not to be attached to these lush meadows. Even now in the full glory of my display, even as my petals unfold in splendor, I pray that I may swiftly go and meet the temple of the three jewels. And so you too, while strong and fit, should abandon your clinging to the pleasing taste of respect and the offerings of others. Meditate in solitude. Seek the pure field of freedom, the great serenity. Meditate in solitude. Seek the pure field of freedom, the great serenity, the ultimate ease. In the Buddhist teaching, there is a great vastness of vision. Now he talks about the different realms of existence, 31 planes of existence, countless world systems, each one of them with the 31 planes of existence, you know, endless cycles of rebirth, infinite expanses of time, He had a big picture. <laughs> and although we may have a <clears throat> great and growing confidence in the Buddha's teaching, <clears throat> still for most of us, these things fall outside the range of direct experience. <laughs> Perhaps not for all, but for most. <laughs> But I think there's another way of understanding the vastness and the depth of this Dharma journey. And that has to do not so much with an outward vision, but rather of a deepening understanding of the nature of mind itself. Of really understanding how suffering is created and of understanding the possibility or experiencing the possibility of freedom. And the beauty of this journey is that this is not a theoretical discourse. It's not like studying the philosophy of the Buddha. It's really about tasting it for ourselves. And that's what our whole practice is about. Even though there's a tremendous range of teaching and philosophy in metaphysics, you know, in the scope of the different Buddhist traditions, all of them converge 
in one understanding of what liberates the mind. And so it really brings us right to the heart, right to the core of this journey of freedom. And the Buddha expressed it very often in the texts. He said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata. That's how he referred to himself. Namely, liberation through non-clinging. This is the deathless, namely liberation through non-clinging. There was a great Indian adept, Talopa, who was this kind of crazy wisdom yogi living under bridges and things like that. And Naropa, who was a great pundit, pundit at Nalanda University, but who realized he had not really yet awakened when seeking Talopa for the teachings. And this is in the lineage. Naropa taught Marpa, Marpa taught Milarepa. So there's that whole lineage that comes from it. Talopa's message to Naropa was very simple. He said, Naropa, you are not fettered by appearances. You're not fettered by experience. You are fettered by attachment. So cut your attachments. From the words of the Buddha to Talopa, last year a yogi came in an interview and expressed the same teaching in a wonderful, with a wonderful example. He said, suffering is rope burn. You know, when you cling, hold on, grasp at a rope that's being pulled through your hand, what happens? Rope burn. It always comes down to the same teaching. Liberation, freedom, through non-clinging, non-grasping. Now what's important, I think, for us is to realize that this is not something, you know, in the far-off future. But to see that non-clinging is our practice now. That's what we're doing moment to moment. That's what we're practicing. We're practicing the mind of non-attachment, of letting go. Moment to moment. You know, this rope of appearance, rope of experience, it may be as smooth and as fine as silk, it may be as coarse or as rough as hemp, but the practice of liberation is exactly the same. We're not practicing in order to have some better experience, but this is so hard to get, even though we hear this over and over again. We're not practicing for some better experience, however wonderful it may be. What we're practicing is what the Buddha called the heart's release. And he expressed it very directly, even in talking about some of the virtues of practice. But he said, this holy life does not have gain, 
honor or renown for its benefit. This holy life does not have the attainment of virtue for its benefit. Does not have the attainment of concentration for its benefit. Does not have knowledge or vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life. Its heartwood and its end. That is the heart of the practice, unshakable deliverance of mind, liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha being the great teacher that he was, helped us along in this by pointing out some of the areas where we do cling, in case we're missing them. You know, because as you have all seen, I'm sure very clearly, the habits of mind, the habituated tendencies, are incredibly strong. Where do we cling, both in our practice and in our lives? The first and most obvious realm or domain of clinging or grasping is our attachment to sense pleasures, to pleasant things that happen through the senses. You know, nice body feelings, we get attached to them. Pleasant thoughts, pleasant emotions. Things that we don't want to let go of. And they may be internal, in terms of our experience. They may be external things. You know, pleasing objects or pleasing people. Seeing this, seeing this attachment to pleasing sense objects reveals or can reveal a lot to us about the nature of addiction, the nature of fascination, of enchantment. We really need to look at these attachments. <coughs> And of course, our whole culture is supporting this clinging, you know, because the message we get in so many places, so many ways, get this, do this, want this, this will make you happy. And even the Buddha has been co-opted, you know, by Madison Avenue. This is one of my favorites. You, you, I'll read it to you, but there's a... There's a big picture here of a nice, serene Buddha. You know, and this is from a magazine. And it says, it can take several lifetimes to reach a state of inner peace and tranquility, or it can take a couple of weeks. <laughs> Concentrate deeply. Good suggestion. <laughs> but now, think about a 14-day ocean journey. <laughs> to Singapore or Bali, Thailand or China, days when your every whim is anticipated, instantly met, places where the sights, smells, lights are a sensual feast imagination can't do justice. Now a flash of insight. <laughs> Royal Caribbean will soon take you to the Far East. 
It's a vacation that until now simply did not exist, but you can believe. For a free brochure, ask your travel agent about the nirvana you have coming. <laughs> Don't put it off another lifetime. So we have to stay on guard here. <laughs> we want to look at these attachments to whatever. We want to learn to look at them with interest, not with judgment. Not with judgment about the fact that they arose, not with self-judgment. You know, we're working, we're dealing with some of the deepest conditioned tendencies and so we want to explore, we want to understand in ourselves how they're operating, how they're working. Now, particularly in the last days of retreat, it's a wonderful time to watch this uh, proliferation of mind. I mentioned some weeks ago you know, just the example of driving down the highway and all these signs advertising at the exits, you know, and which exits do we get off? Which amusement parks do we go play in? Well, what's coming up for you now? You know, where is the mind getting caught? Where is it getting seduced? What exits are you taking? Are you looking at the experience of desire itself, at this clinging to sense pleasure, sense objects, pleasing things. We really want to experience what that's like. <clears throat> One example that you know, illustrates this for me is you haven't had this uh, specific example, I hope, in the last few months, uh, but you know from the past, probably, in watching TV, all the advertising, you know, just one commercial after another. Now just think what it would be like if your mind wanted everything that was advertised. I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. The suffering would be so obvious. You know, we'd be in a, we'd be in a continual state of dissatisfaction with what we have and grasping or clinging for what we don't have. There's a lot of dukkha in that. We can see, you don't particularly have the commercials on TV to watch now, but you do have the commercials in your own mind. You know, all these things. Want this, want this, want this. We want to see the dukkha, the suffering of that craving, and the release, the feeling of relief when the mind lets go. We begin to experience for ourselves, not theoretically, but in the moment, we begin to experience that sense of ease, ease of mind, spaciousness of mind, that comes from not clinging. It's not only clinging to pleasing objects, but we can also cling to pleasing meditative states. You know, when the mind does get concentrated or calm or peaceful or luminous. How are we relating to that? Are we becoming attached to that? 
we can become attached to the unfolding process itself, becoming so fascinated, and it is tremendously compelling, just this moment-to-moment unfolding, that we start leaning into the process in anticipation with, the, with this moment in order to be with the next, in order to be with the next, as if some moment's experience will resolve it all for us. Or if I just get to the next, whatever, whether it's breath or sensation or feeling, we lean into this process of becoming and so stay chained to that wheel. What's radically transformative is the understanding that we can disengage the gears of attachment in any moment. It's not something we have to build up to. It's not something we need to wait for it to happen in any moment when we remember we can let go of that clinging to whatever it is. And we begin to rest in what has been called <clears throat> the innate natural wakefulness or to rest in natural awareness. This letting go of wanting, letting go of clinging or grasping doesn't mean that we're pushing away things. It doesn't mean we're pushing away pleasant experience. Because that's just its own kind of attachment. The mind of no clinging is open, it's vast, and we can practice it in any moment. So this is the first domain of clinging pleasing states, pleasing objects. The next domain of clinging is our attachment to opinions and views. Attachment to our own point of view, our own perspective. Attachment to being right. This one goes deep. Now, how much conflict there is in our own worlds and in the world because of people's attachment to their opinion about things, whatever it is. I think the first step in letting go is to distinguish between what we really know and what is simply an opinion. Because we have a lot of opinions about things that we really don't have a clue about. You know, we're just repeating something we've heard or something we've thought of, but about which we really don't know. So I think this is a helpful discrimination to make. And even about what we actually do know, can we keep an open mind about it? Not getting fixated or not getting attached 
to the opinion or to the view, even if it is based on experience, not getting attached to our interpretation of the experience. Because what happens, especially in meditative circles, is that our attachment to what we know, even if it's from experience, can become a condition for this Dharma pride. Oh, well, I really know this. And what Dharma pride leads to is tremendous sectarianism. I know this, and if you see it in another way, you must be wrong. And so it really gets to be a kind of fundamentalism. There's many examples of this in spiritual traditions. And it's certainly uh, prevalent in the traditions of Buddhism. And just as an example, which I'd like to go into in some detail, is the many different views that are expressed about enlightenment, about the unconditioned, about Nibbana. I mean, the Royal Caribbean had it easy. You just sign up for a two-week cruise. But actually, when you take that cruise and end up in the Far East, they have quite different views of what Nirvana is. Some traditions approach it from the perspective of how we experience this flow of changing objects. You know, so much of what we do here is just noticing the objects arising and passing away. And there's a whole path, there's a whole way of describing this freedom of the mind in terms of how we experience phenomena. And this is expressed, you know, in one tradition in terms of the classical stages of insight. You may be a little familiar with them, you know, stages of seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena, stages of seeing the dissolution, things disappearing, stages of feeling the misery, disgust, the unsatisfactoriness with changing phenomena, the unreliability, stages of equanimity, where the mind comes to rest in a perfect impartiality. The experience of the cessation of this continuous flow of experience, you know, opening to what is beyond. The Buddha said, there is bhikkhus an unborn, an unmade, unformed. If bhikkhus there were no unborn, no unmade, no unformed, no release from what is born, or made, or formed, or constructed, would be possible. But since there is an unborn, unmade, unformed, therefore release is possible. So this is one way of understanding the unconditioned, that which is not formed, not born. There's a wonderful story about Sariputra, which I think you'll 
probably be able to relate to quite well. He was addressing a group of monks uh, and he was saying, Oh, bliss of Nibbana, bliss of Nibbana. And one of the bhikkhus said to him, If there's no sensation in Nibbana, how can it be blissful? And Sariputta responded, My friend, it is precisely because there is no sensation that it is blissful. And I'm sure you've had moments. <laughs> Other schools or traditions don't describe this experience of the unconditioned you know, through the progressive stages of how we're experiencing phenomena, but rather express the understanding of the awakened mind through a description of that mind itself. A description of the mind which is free of defilement, free of kalesa, the mind of no clinging, the mind released. One of the greatest teachers of this approach, uh, who's still living, is Ajahn Mahabhu of Thailand, who's in the Thai forest tradition. He himself, he's very old now, he himself was a disciple of Ajahn Man, who we've talked about. He was the one who would send his disciples off to sit with tigers. Yeah. And Ajahn Mahabhu, he talked about Conventional mind and the mind released. Okay, what is conventional mind? We're quite familiar with that. You know, conventional mind is ruled by papancha, by discursive thought. It's all the proliferating tendencies of thought, of concept, of story that we get lost in again and again and again. You know, you know so well the predominance, the preponderance of this mind of papancha, of proliferation. Conditioned by ignorance, conditioned by craving. It's what I think we could call normal mind. You know, because this is our normal state of affairs. But when through... mindful awareness, went through wisdom, we actually, to some extent or completely, free the mind from kalesa, free the mind from defilement, then what could be called the natural mind as opposed to the normal mind, the natural mind appears to its full extent. And what is the quality of this natural mind? This is Ajahn Mahabhava, all that remains is simple awareness, utterly pure. This awareness has no reference point or center. All the aggregates, the conditioned phenomena, are still arising and passing. They're still functioning in their own way. But the mind of no clinging, the natural mind of awareness, is not affected by any of that. And here he says something that's really beautiful. He says, this liberated mind, this pure awareness, 
does not partake of any feeling apart from ultimate ease. Uh, sounds good. <laughs> ultimate ease, which is its own nature. The nature of this utterly pure, simple awareness. It's ultimate ease. There was a Tibetan monk, a wonderful, realized yogi and poet, and his name was Shabkar, who I'll read a little more from in a bit. But he wrote this now. He said, Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal. Mind's nature is as vivid as a flawless piece of crystal intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. This is the nature of awareness, the nature of our own mind. It's not something outside. So we want to look in, we want to see, we want to recognize this in ourselves. And part of the teachings of Ajahn Mahabhu, he emphasizes again and again that the kalesas, the defilements, the path, and this simple, utterly pure awareness, the ultimate ease, are all right here, right now, in the heart. It's not something apart from ourselves. There's another Thai monk whose name was Buddhadasa. He spoke yet in another way about the unconditioned or Nibbana. And he did in a very simple, down-home examples. He talked of Nibbana, or the unconditioned, as being coolness, coolness of heart. And the word Nibbana in Thailand is used colloquially when people boil rice, you know, and they might say, wait till the rice Nibbanas, right? wait till the rice cools down. So what does Nibbana, what does the unconditioned mean in this context? It means the mind, the heart-mind, free of the fire, of grasping, of desire, of entanglements, you know, of the obscurations, of the kalesas. Buddhadasa said that the more cool the mind in any moment, the more Nibbana there is in that moment. And so I kind of got this image of practicing keeping an eye out on the Nibbana reading of this thermostat. Okay, how cool is the mind now in this moment? Is it caught up in the fire of attachment or is it cooled out? We can see this in very simple practical ways in our practice. We can get a taste of what this coolness means. 
notice those moments of transition when we're going from being lost in desire, lost in anger, lost in judgment, lost in reaction. Notice those moments of transition when we're going from lost from being in these states to the mind released from them. What does it feel like? Again, this is not, this is not philosophy. This is about how we're actually experiencing things in the moment. The suffering and the release from the suffering. Notice the difference between being lost in a thought. Just that contraction of identification. You know, when we're carried away by some story, some train of thoughts, and that moment of awakening from it. What's the difference in the quality of the heart? What's the Nibbana reading at that time? Can we feel the coolness, the ease? When there's pain in the body, notice the difference when the mind is contracted in relationship to the pain, you know, out of fear or aversion. Notice the difference between that and when we're resting in the natural state of awareness, in openness, simply mindful of the pain. It's a completely different experience. So these are very ordinary things that we touch many times in a day. But they're all revealing something if we know how to look, if we're really looking wisely. Because all of them, these different experiences, are pointing to the qualities of Nibbana, of the unconditioned, the quality of relief, release, coolness, openness. And so we could think of temporary Nibbana as temporary absence of defilements. And the supreme state of Nibbana when the defilements are totally uprooted, totally eradicated. Seeing the moments, experiencing the moments of coolness through the day are tremendously important. First because they're incredibly healing. You know, mostly in the busyness of people's lives, the mind is really caught up in the fire of attachment, of clinging. And to be going through this experience where we really taste, even from time to time or intermittently, when we taste the coolness, taste the release, it really leads us onward or awakens in us the possibility of ultimate ease ultimate freedom. So the question is, you know, can we be open to all of these various expressions of the Dharma, of what the unconditioned means, of the unborn? Or do we get attached to one particular view, one particular perspective, taking a stance, and what happens when we do? When we take a stance, oh, this is the way it is. 
we are just creating that sense of solidification of separation. We're actually in that moment losing the coolness, losing the ease. Liberation through non-clinging. We cling to sense, pleasures, pleasing things in our lives. We cling to views and opinions. Perhaps most deeply, most deeply conditioned, we cling to the concept or idea of self. You know, we solidify a reference point on which we take a stand. And we've seen this over and over again. Every time we identify with a thought, with a sensation, with an emotion, we're creating the sense of self in that moment. We create a sense of self in the stories we make up. quite illuminating to start paying attention to all the stories we create about ourselves, about our lives, about other people, about our spiritual journey. We're making it all up. Maybe in 20 years I'll get enlightened. That's a story. No, I can't do this. That's a story. I'm a great yogi. That's a story. Can we see this? Can we see this proliferation of the mind and just let go, see through it? We create a sense of self in our innumerable projections about other people. I mean, not only do we make up stories about ourselves, that would be bad enough, but we make up stories about everybody else in the world. It's like we're living in this storyland. So watch in the course of the day the many times this happens and the sense of self that's created in, that, in those moments. You know, we've talked about paying attention to the moments of selfing. Well, really, really watch out for those times of contraction. <coughs> when does the, the I sense appear? Those moments can illuminate something for us if we're paying attention. So the great question in our lives, in our practice, given these domains of clinging to pleasing sense objects, to views and opinions, to the sense of self, how can we accomplish, how can we practice the mind of no clinging? How can we realize that liberation through non-clinging? One profound path of awakening is through the 
awareness of impermanence. And we can become aware of impermanence on every level of experience. You know, if you, if you think of the largest, the most macro systems, you know, clusters of galaxies or something like that, all of that is subject to change. Or down to the tiniest subatomic particles. Is there anything there that is static? On any level that we look, we can tune into the truth of change. Now we look at just the cycle, the ordinary cycle of birth and death of the body. We look at the momentary flickerings, thought forms in the mind. Now what's so amazing about this is that we know this and we all know this very well intellectually. Now we could go up to anybody on the street and ask them, do things change? And everybody will say yes, this is not some deep mystery. We know it intellectually, but we don't really live that wisdom. And when we don't live in this wisdom, not only of knowing it intellectually, but seeing it immediately, the immediacy of knowing impermanence, when we're not living in that way, what happens that is that we suffer in every time of change, which is really another word for loss. What does change mean? It means that we're losing something. Something is being lost. If we're not aware that this is the nature, the change is the nature of everything, we try to hold on, whether it's to things, to people, to situations, to ones we love. The Buddha gave very explicit uh, guidance in this. You know, with so many of the teachings, I think it's really important not to hear it as Buddhist philosophy, but to really hear it as instructions for liberation. Because that's what the Buddha was doing. He wasn't interested in talking theory. The teachings is all about instructions for awakening the heart, awakening the mind. So here's an instruction which is found very often. Whatever feeling arises, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the cessation of those feelings. And really watch them arising and them passing, whatever feeling arises. Contemplate relinquishment, letting go. Contemplating thus, meditating thus, we do not cling to anything in the world. When we do not cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. We attain the ultimate ease. So this is something for us to do. This is what our practice is. 
in each moment different feelings are arising, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Are we abiding, contemplating the impermanence of them, the fading away, the seeing that they don't last? Because that's what leads us, that's what brings us to non-clinging. <coughs> Now we've been sitting now for quite a while. Just think for a moment of the high point of your retreat. You know, those two or three minutes <laughs> when it was really good. <laughs> Clear, open, concentrated, still, blissful, wonderful. You know, and think for a moment of absolutely the worst time of the retreat. You know, those two months of pain. <laughs> pain and tension and boredom and this and that. But where are all these experiences now? You know, the intensity of the high or the intensity of the low point. We get so caught up, so involved, so enmeshed in it all. But where is it? The truth of impermanence, when we really look, is so obvious. Now, all our past experience is like a dream. Whether it's from years ago or the last moment. Where's the last moment? It's just disappearing, disappearing, disappearing. But what's so bizarre is that even though we know this in our own experience, we know this from the truth of our lives, yet when we look ahead to what might happen, we continually get dazzled by all the possibilities. Even though we know that whatever we might experience in the future is going to end up exactly like everything in the past. <laughs> And so I suggest in these days of the retreat, the last 10 or 11 days, a wonderful time to see this. You know, because undoubtedly the mind will conjure up all sorts of possibilities. You know, of what you're going to do when you leave here and this and that. And just really bring some insight, some wisdom to this. Why do we get dazzled about something that we know is just another changing event, another impermanent event. It's not that we don't do things, it's not that we don't act in the world, but can we do it with the wisdom of understanding the impermanence and the freedom of not clinging, of liberation through not clinging? So the awareness of impermanence, practicing the seeing of that moment to moment is a deep and profound path of awakening.
Another way to accomplish the mind of no clinging, the mind of liberation, is by a deepening insight into emptiness, into the selfless nature of it all. Now, Kamala spoke the other night about the five aggregates, material elements and feeling, perception, all the different formations of mind, consciousness. With wisdom, we see them just as they are. With the wisdom, we see that these experiences, these arising appearances, don't belong to anyone. They don't refer back to anyone. There's no one behind them to whom they're happening. It's simply phenomena being known, moment after moment <coughs> after moment. Again, the Buddha gave a very clear instruction in this. In terms of how we can relate with wisdom to each experience as it arises. He said, to consider it like this. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And through not clinging to anything as I or self, one is liberated. Not clinging to anything as I or mine. Not physical sensations, not thoughts, feelings, emotions, not awareness itself. It's all phenomena, empty, empty of self, empty of substance. We can also understand selflessness through seeing that this play of phenomena is not amenable to our wishes. I mean, if there were really a self in charge, we could say, I'm in charge here. Don't get sick. Don't get old. From now on, only pleasant experience. <laughs> but there is no one in charge. Everything is simply arising out of conditions. Given these conditions, this effect happens. The condition, conditions change, the effect changes. There's a series of discourses the Buddha gave which has always been very uh, striking to me. Because in them, in the most simple way, he pops the balloon of self. Right? He, he deconstructs this whole notion. And there's, there's a little story behind the suttas. Uh, this one monk whose name was Anuradha. And he was walking around, he came to a group of wandering ascetics. And these ascetics said to him in what was the classical Indian formulation at that time, talking about the Buddha after his death, that the Buddha exists after his death, 
does not exist after his death, both exists and doesn't exist, neither exists nor, nor doesn't exist. So, just that little formula. So, Anuradha said, in reply, the Buddha is spoken of in ways other than this. And then it's said that all these wandering ascetics just laughed at Anuradha and said he was a fool. So Anuradha felt a little badly about this, and he came to the Buddha to find out what the scoop was. And he asked, how could I have responded in accord with the truth? So the Buddha then asked Anuradha a series of questions. So when you listen to this, just imagine that it's the Buddha asking us these questions. And they're not hard. Okay, I think. Okay, so the Buddha is asking us: Is the body permanent or impermanent? What do you think? <laughs> Are feelings permanent or impermanent? Perceptions. Formations, consciousness, are they impermanent or permanent? Anuradha answered, impermanent, O Lord. Okay, so the Buddha asked another question. That which is impermanent, is it reliable or unreliable? ultimately satisfying or unsatisfying? Unreliable, O oh Lord. Okay, really look in our experience at this. I mean, this is the Buddha asking us these questions. Now, everything that arises, is it permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Is what is impermanent reliable or unreliable? Unreliable. The Buddha goes on, what is impermanent, unreliable, what is of the nature to change, is it proper to regard that as this is mine, this is myself, this is I? Okay, now remember, the Buddha is talking about every aspect of experience, which he just went through asking impermanent or permanent. Okay, every single aspect, every single moment of experience, given that it's impermanent, unreliable, nature to change, is it proper, does it make sense to regard that as this is mine, this is who I am, this is I? Nanarana says, no, Bhante, no, Lord. Okay, now, stay connected to this. Now, Anuradha, the Buddha went on. Do you regard the Tathagata's body, the Buddha's body, as being the Tathagata? <coughs> Is the Buddha his body? Surely not. Do you regard feelings, perceptions, formations, consciousness, all of which are momentarily arising and changing? Do you consider those momentary arisings the Tathagata? 
Surely not, O Lord. Okay. Do you regard, so the Tathagata is none of these things. Do you regard the Tathagata as being something different than these? Well, if the Buddha is not any of these things, is he something other than these things? No, Bhante. Do you regard the Tathagata, the Buddha, as having no body, no feelings, no perceptions, no formations, no consciousness? Surely not. So it's not that the Buddha is some disembodied self without a body, without these aggregates. Okay, this is the punchline. And this is really... Then since... In just this life, the Tathagata is not to be found, is not met with in reality. Is it proper to say of him he can be spoken of in some way after death? Which goes back to the original story. No, Bhante. Since in just this very life, the Tathagata is not to be found. He's not the aggregates. He's not not the aggregates. There's no Tathagata, no self, no I to be found. Not to be met with in reality. Well said, Anuradha. Both formally and now, only this do I teach. What suffering is, and what is its end. It's this understanding of the essentially empty nature of phenomena, that there is no self, no I to be found. Liberation through non-clinging, through the awareness of impermanence, through the awareness of selflessness. It's like awakening from a dream, awakening from the mirage of self, of separation. I'd like to close with, this is a teaching from Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, who was really one of the very great Tibetan masters of this century. When you realize this true emptiness of phenomena, you will spontaneously feel an all-embracing, non-conceptual compassion for all beings who are immersed in samsara's ocean of suffering because they cling to the notion of an ego. This troublesome ego, which is so concerned about itself, has in reality never begun to exist. It does not exist any place now, and so it cannot cease to exist. Not the slightest trace of it can be found. When you recognize the empty nature Therefore, any notion 
of there being an ego to dissolve vanishes. And at the same time, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. This troublesome ego, which is so concerned about itself, has in reality never begun to exist. It does not exist anywhere now, and so it cannot cease to exist. Not the slightest trace of self can be found. When you realize the empty nature, therefore, any notion of there being a self to dissolve vanishes, and at the same time the energy to bring about the good of others dawns, uncontrived and effortless. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.